Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome everyone to Fitness for Consumption. I'm your host, Paul Juris, and I'm here with my really good friend and co-host, Gregory Gordon. Gigi, what's happening? How are you doing today? I am doing well. Uh, what do we have on the agenda for today? Well, you know, this is backed by popular demand, actually. We <laughs> that had, is actually a true statement. This is a true verified statement. Verified by empirical data. Yes, exactly. We are very data-driven, and so <laughs> we had a very, very high uh, turnout, if you will, uh, for an episode that we did called The Fine Print. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to do it again. And this time, we sort of have a subtitle for the episode. We're calling it What's It All About? Mm -hmm. I think that will be uh, obvious to people as we get through this and explain. So what mm -hmm. do we do in the fine print? Let me just recap the process for those who haven't heard this, right? Please. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through a research paper. And we sort of do it from the perspective of a casual reader. Mm -hmm. Since evidence-based research and evidence-based practices are now sort of vogue in fitness, people are looking for evidence. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when people look at research studies, what they typically do is they read the abstract, maybe pull a little bit of the information from that. They see the conclusion in the abstract. If that's all they have, they stop there. If they have the paper, maybe what they do from there is go right to the conclusions and right to the discussion because they mm -hmm. already got the information out of the abstract. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And then they say, OK, I understand what they found. And I'm just going to go and do or not do, depending on how people look at it, what these authors are saying. Yeah. And what we're saying is, hold the phone. Don't go there yet. Before you jump to conclusions, maybe that's what the authors did. Let's dig into the study a little bit. Let's see what they did. And then let's read the fine print. Because, you know, when you see a contract, everything looks great until you get to the fine print and you start scratching your head and saying, what's going on here, right? Right. And, you know, a little bit of uh, self-promotion here. 
uh, on your behalf, PJ. So, you know, this is really an opportunity to go through a scientific paper with a research scientist, which I am not. I'm really a clinician and I've gone to grad school and I've read a lot of papers. But, you know, we have this conversation all the time off the air that even for me, relative to the average person, I read tons of, you know, scientific research papers. And I can't every time we do one of these or talk about a paper in depth, it's amazing to me how much I miss. So it's really an opportunity for any of our listeners to actually be able to listen to and go through the process of breaking down a paper with an actual research scientist. So I feel fortunate to have you with me and I hope our listeners do too. Well, thank you, Gigi. And yeah. you know, it's, it's important too, that we say that, look, we read research studies and people read them and not, they don't always understand what it is they're actually looking at. Absolutely. You know, yeah. What are methods and how should methods be created and what are they supposed to be doing? And so we see the outcome, we see the numbers, but do we really understand how people arrived at those numbers? And if there's anything in there that is not being overtly stated. Mm -hmm. So that's the purpose of the fine print. And so we pulled out a study for this, which is a very, very interesting study to me. And it's really unique on its own, in its own right. And so, Gigi, what is this study that we're going to examine today? Yeah. So this study, I remember when it came out, it got a lot of publicity. For some reason, I never ended up reading it when it came out, but I definitely remember hearing of it. So the study we're tackling today is, hold on now, the effect of supervised periodized exercise training versus self-directed training on lean body mass and other fitness variables in health club members. That's a tongue twister right yeah. there, isn't it? <laughs> That's a heck of a title. So this study was published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, 2014. Uh, and the primary authors are Thomas W. Storer and Brett E. Dolezal. And then there's a few other authors on the paper as well. Okay. So... The effect of supervised periodized exercise training versus self-directed training. So Mm -hmm. supervised is somebody's watching you. Self-directed means you're on your own. So let's, all right. So then the question is, all right, so why are they asking this? I mean, you know, they're doing a study. Everybody has to have a reason. So what do you think the reason is? Well, so it's actually, when you think about it, it's a really legitimate and valid question because so much of the exercise research that's out there Um, is done in either a hospital setting or university laboratory setting, but, you know, what we would consider like clinical settings. So the authors, the, the, the question they were wondering is, can we, like, have there been any studies that have been done on exercise uh, training in the gym environment? So when someone goes to the gym, typically they're going there to achieve some sort of result, some sort of outcome. And if they're hiring a personal trainer, it stands to reason they're trying to be even more specific about, you know, achieving a certain outcome. But Mm -hmm. have there been any studies in a gym setting that have actually shown that hiring a personal trainer uh, allows you to achieve the results that you're looking for more efficiently? And as we've as the author state in this paper, there haven't been any studies done in the gym environment for pr- providing evidence whether a per- hiring a personal trainer will allow you to achieve the results more efficiently versus not hiring a personal trainer. 
So it's interesting because it sort of gets at this question of whether it's worth it to invest your money in a trainer, right? Yeah. You know, do you get better results if you're working with somebody? So I think there are sort of, this has a twofold purpose to it. One is let's do a, a study that's done in a gym environment instead of a lab environment, because mm -hmm. if there's any criticism about research coming from fitness, it's that it is done in a lab where the conditions are very sterile and very controlled, mm -hmm. right? That's not what necessarily happens in real life. What you do in real life is what they're looking at in this gym environment. Um, that's the first part of it. And then I guess the second part is, okay, do you get better results when you're supervised? Or right. do you get equally good results when you're on your own? And so that's what was being determined here. Right. Because every gym that has personal trainers, you know, markets that, you know, you get significant results when you use one of their trainers, but none of them actually have a scientific study that provides evidence for that. So okay. very so, valid question. All right. Fair enough. So we're going to do what everybody does which is jump right to the abstract because yep. that's where you start. And by the way, if you do a, a, a search, let's say a Google Scholar search or a Medline search, and you pull up one of these articles, if you don't have a subscription to that journal, then you can only see the abstract. Now you'll see the abstract, you'll see who the authors were, you'll see who they're affiliated with, um, but you'll only see the abstract. So let's assume we're at that point. So mm -hmm. what does this abstract tell us, Gigi? All right. Well, let's begin at the beginning then. So let's start with the hypothesis. So okay. the investigator's hypothesis was that health club members who receive training in a progressive periodized fitness program, and we'll speak a little bit more about what periodized means, but periodized fitness program will show greater improvements in lean body mass and other fitness variables than members whose fitness programs are self-directed. Okay. So they're saying if you have a supervised periodized program, you'll get better results than if you're on your own. Right. And the primary measure they're looking for is lean body mass. So the addition of muscle mass, not just weight, which could mm -hmm. be, you know, retaining water or fat mass, lean body mass muscle. Okay. So the results were that the train group improved lean body mass, 1.3 kilograms. And there was no change in the self group. So between the groups, and we're going to talk about this a lot. So there's uh, changes within a group, and then there's changes between the two groups. So mm -hmm. between the two groups, the train group improved 1.3 kilograms. The self training group did not improve, and that there was a significant difference between the groups. Okay, good. Okay, so they, in addition to lean body mass, they also had some secondary measures they were looking at. So two of them were chest press strength and leg mm -hmm. press strength. Okay. So in the chest press strength, in, so like a one rep max they were looking at. Right. So in the chest press, both groups improved and both groups improved significantly, mm -hmm. although the train group improved more in their group than the self group did. Right, Okay. So um, they got a better they got a better outcome. The train group got a better outcome in chest press strength than the self-directed group. Okay. Right. Yep. Yep. And mm -hmm. in in the leg press, they both improved again, but between the groups, there was no significant difference between the groups. Okay. So, so the self group did just as well basically as this as the train group in the leg press strength. Right, exactly. Okay. So another thing they looked at was leg power. And there was a significant increase in leg power in the train group, mm -hmm. and there was no improvement in the self group. Okay. 
And obviously, if one got better and the other one didn't, chances are there were significant differences between right. them. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense too. And okay. then the they also looked at VO2 max. So again, the train group increased their VO2 max and the self group actually decreased their VO2 max. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, that is curious. Okay. And then they also looked at body fat percentage. So the self group actually had a significant decrease in body fat percentage. Yeah. And the train group, there was no change. And there was not a significant difference between the groups. Okay. But there's certainly, I mean, that says there's sort of a trend in one direction, right? One group yeah. had a decrease and, and the other one didn't. Yeah. And one outlier. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting too. All right. So what do they conclude from this? So they conclude that significant increases in lean body mass are more probable when fitness club members exercise with expert supervision using a well-designed, periodized exercise training program com compared with members who chose to train on their own. Hmm. So essentially what they're saying is that their hypothesis was correct. They thought that members who worked out with a qualified personal trainer under supervision would achieve better results in terms of their primary measure, at least, lean body mass. And they conclude that that's what the study showed. Okay. So they proved their hypothesis. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you're a reader of this, listen, you know, our listeners, if you've read this and you've read the abstract, then this is the information you get. Yep. And you are going to say, all right, I know that people get better results when they're working with a trainer. But before we go there, let's at least understand what was done. Right. Right. Let's not just take that at face value. Let's look at how they did this, how they set up the study, um, and then we can start to get into things at a little bit deeper level. So let's get into the methods then a little bit. What are the methods? What did they use? How did they set it up? You know, how was this study constructed? Let's start with the subjects. Right. Who were the so subjects? Th so I'll just break it down a little bit how they went about getting the subjects. So they, it, this was done by a health club, as we mentioned. Um, so the health club put out a email to their members and they got 54 responses. And of those 54 responses, 11 people were excluded automatically so they had 43, and then uh, it eventually ended up being 17 in each group. So they had a total of 34 males, mm -hmm. 17 in each group. All the males were 30 to 44 years old. They all had exercise experience of working out five to seven days per month over the last, the preceding three-month period. Okay. So just to put that in perspective, we're taking a population of males from a health club. Mm-hmm that are between 30 and 44 years old and have relatively comparable exercise experience. So we can say that the subject population was relatively homogeneous. Right. You don't have any outliers. You don't have any strange people working out. Everybody who's in the study, you know, collectively, it's all, they're all comparable. Right. Which, which is what we should do when we do a research study, right? Make sure that the population that the subjects all come from what we call the same sample population, mm -hmm. right? right? Because if there are differences, then that can manifest themselves in the results. So we want to make sure that at least we start on a level playing field. Right. Okay. So then what happens? Okay. So once they had the subjects, there was the train group 
and then there was the self group and mm-hmm. they were put into the groups by process of randomizing them. So PJ, do you want to talk about randomizing for a second about how they how that's done in a study? Yeah, sure. So basically, like I said, we want to start with a, a, a larger sample that has you know, relatively the same population, right? The characteristics of these people are very comparable. And then what we do is we put them in their numbers, you know, mm-hmm. not their names. We don't use their names. We put their numbers in a hat and we pull out a number and we say, number six, you're going in the train group. And number 14, you're going in the self-directed group. Mm-hmm. That's randomization. So that the selection or appointment of a subject to a group is done at random. There's no bias. There's no influence. And this way, it's fair. The way the groups get distributed is fair. So that's right. randomization. And this was considered a single blind study. So you want to take a second, just explain blinding? Yeah, blinding means that someone doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a subject in this study, of course, you have to know what's going right. on. And if you're a trainer in this study, you have to know what's going on. But someone is actually doing the testing, right? So we'll talk about the criterion measures in a minute. We already talked about lean body mass and strength, and those are the criterion measures. We'll Mm -hmm. go back over those. Someone has to test those things. Mm -hmm. And so those people, the people who are actually testing these criterion measures, they were blind as to which group any subject had come from. So when subject 16 shows up for testing, the person who is doing the testing, administering the test, doesn't know which group that person came from. So this way that they can assert no bias into the outcome. Okay. So we've got the group. So we we know we've got the self group and we've got the train group. So what they did is that they were both put through a 12-week study with three sessions per week. So whether you're in the train group or the self group, you're expected to show up for three sessions a week over a period of 12 weeks. Okay. 36 sessions total then. Yep. Okay. Um, So no nutritional guidance was given. So whether you're in the self group or train group, you were not given any sort of instruction on nutrition. Okay. Um, And the trainers that were working with the people in the train group were told specifically not to encourage any added exercise volume. Oh, okay. So they have to stick to the protocol, but, you know, not tell people, hey, you know, go do some of this or do some of that. So I guess, you know, the subjects in the study being health club members, they may naturally go to the trainers and say, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I want more results. So what else can I do? And they're instructed mm-hmm. not to encourage people to not do Not to anything. encourage. Right. Okay. Got it. And we're taking that verbatim from the paper, the, the term not to encourage. So, okay. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the training protocol. So um, the way they describe it in the paper is that the training protocol was composed of uh, a proprietary, progressive, cyclic, scientifically-based, nonlinear, periodized program. Hmm. So that, that's, a, that's a lot to say. So Another mouthful. Yeah. So first of all, let's talk, let's, let's break that down a little bit. So proprietary means that the way they sequence exercises, the type of exercises they're using, they consider the way they program it, that they've got a certain unique way of doing it that is all their own. And they don't want to share that with anybody. 
Yeah, so we should point out here that we don't know exactly the exercises or the sequences they did. It's pro They just explained it right here as proprietary. So periodization just looks at over the course of a given period of time, you would look at how you'd want to program your exercise volume, intensity, the exercises mm -hmm. themselves. So if I understand what these folks were doing, because they do talk about this in the study, is they have these three training cycles or periods. So the periodization right. here is broken up into these three phases and it's a 12 week study. So therefore each period is four weeks. Right. And so what they do is for the first four weeks, they have a certain type of objective, right? right? And then for the second four weeks, they have an objective and then, and then so on the third four weeks. And so that's the periodization. And then the nonlinear part is within each four week period cycle, it undulates, meaning the intensity goes up and it comes mm -hmm. down and it goes up and it comes down. So it's not flat. There right. are changes in the volume and intensity over those four weeks mm -hmm. relative to the overall training objective of that particular cycle. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so the first phase, they focus on some core stuff and they focus on trying to minimize any neuromuscular inhibitions. Then the second phase is built on some of the stuff you're doing in the first phase with a little bit more intensity. And then the third phase is higher intensity exercise. They did mention that they do uh, brief periods of some high intensity interval training in the third phase. And I think power training too in the third phase. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So All it's right. progressive in that way. All right. So there we go. So they sort of do like a foundational phase and then yep. they do like a strength building phase and then they do a high intensity power phase. Yep. So, all right. So that's what they did. Um, and then what about these trainers, right? They have, they have expert trainers working with them as they say in their hypothesis. So who are they? Yeah. So they were trainers from this club. So five trainers were selected. Now, first of all, any of the trainers that were selected had either a bachelor's or master's degree in exercise science. Mm -hmm. On top of that, they had a collective 280 hours of more continuing education. And they also had specific instruction on managing human subjects in a research study, which is really important because you might assume that if someone has a master's or bachelor's degree in exercise science, they know all about managing subjects in a research study. But, you know, you don't necessarily, unless you're doing studies and have participated in helping on studies, um, you wouldn't necessarily have that information. So it's important that they actually had received that specific type of training. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so then anything else that we should know about? Yeah, this? something very significant. So I'm going to quote from the paper here. So Okay. The, the templates for this, for the exercise scheme that we mentioned, the, the specific nonlinear periodized program, mm -hmm. um, was created, the program was created from, quote, a guidance from outside experts, including exercise physiologists, physical therapists, certified personal trainers, and athletic trainers. So basically, there's a whole Congress of qualified expert exercise specialists that came together to create this program that we mentioned. Wow. This is like the dream team of personal training yes. programs here, right? This is... Yeah. This is special. Right. And this is um, probably not what every club is uh, providing. So okay. unique. 
It is unique, that's for sure. Okay, so that's the trained group. Now, right. what if you got assigned to the self-directed group? Okay, so if you're on the self-directed group, again, you were told that the objective was increasing your lean body mass. So you were told, we'll see you in 12 weeks, and we want to see that your objective is to increase your lean body mass. Um, beyond that, they weren't given much. They were permitted to train using methods of their own choosing. Um, and again, they got no nutritional guidance. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, um, all right. So they were told what the objective was. Right. You're supposed to work towards improving your lean body mass. Other than that, they were just left to their own devices to do this. Now, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to play a game with you here, mm -hmm. Gigi, because I'm one of these members. I knew I was solicited by the club to participate in this study. And I'm thinking, wow, I have an opportunity to be a subject in this study and get this incredible training program from these great personal trainers. And instead, they stick me in the self-directed group. I'm like, wow, I'm already yeah. self-directed. <laughs> right. So what's in it for me? So like, what did they do to get these subjects to actually do anything yeah. as opposed to bailing out? Exactly. Good question. So what they did was they, they thought about that beforehand. And what they did was that they promised that if the member, the self-directed members showed up and uh, adhered to the protocol, that they would get two months of free membership plus six free personal training sessions at the okay, conclusion so of the some... study. Right. Now, adhering to the protocol because they're not given a protocol simply means that they were expected to show up 36 times. Right. Three times a week over 12 out. weeks. Yep. Exactly. Right. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yep. All right. So now we got the two groups. They're going to be training for 12 weeks and they're going to be tested. Now, we already alluded to this in the abstract, but let's dive into it a little bit deeper. Yep. Um, what are they testing? So, so what are the criterion measures? So the first thing, as we mentioned, the primary measure they were looking for in the study was lean body mass. So the, okay. the way they analyzed lean body mass, and we should mention that this study was um, – funded by a health club, but the measurements, they were, they were done in conjunction with a well-known hospital. So the measurements, so they used what's called a DEXA, a dual x-ray absorptiometry, yes. which <laughs> I can't explain Another all tongue that. Twister. Yeah. I can't explain <laughs> all that well, other than that is considered the gold standard, correct, PJ, for measuring lean body mass? Yes, it's a very expensive device that uses x-ray and some other type of technology in order to partition the substances in the body so it can separate fat from bone, from lean tissue, et cetera, and so on. So it's very, very accurate. All right. So we could have confidence that that's a good tool for assessing lean body mass. It is the tool. It is, as you said, it's the gold standard. So if you're going to do it, that's the way to do it. Right. And so they assessed lean body mass and they measured, so total lean body mass. And then what they refer to as appendicular mass. So just quickly, so when you look at a human body, there's what we call the axial skeleton, the appendicular skeleton. So the axial, axial is head, spine, rib cage, and appendicular is just the extremities. So shoulders, arms. So they basically legs. looked at the, the muscle in the arms and legs 
as the appendicular yep. section and then everything else, all the muscle everywhere else. Right. Exactly. Okay, cool. Um, so in terms of muscular strength, what they did was they did a one rep max chest press and a leg press. So what they did is, so when you do one rep max testing, what you do is you take a subject and you start to, you go down the road of seeing how many reps they can do and you see if they can do four reps, then you have them take a break and then you, you keep increasing the weight until they can only do one rep successfully. Okay. Yeah. And then you give them an, an adequate period of time. Mm -hmm. If they think they can do more, you give them a rest interval so that they don't get too fatigued as you're trying to work towards one. Makes sense. Right. And they use machines for this. Okay. As Easy to, to control. Don't put anybody at risk. Sure. Yep. That's a good idea. Okay. okay. So for the lower body power, they use what's called a jump mat, which mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, PJ, is that considered a gold standard? I've, I've heard that used pretty often, but... It's not a gold standard uh, because it's an indirect measure. So what a jump mat does is you stand on a mat, you jump in the air. Mm -hmm. The mat determines when you take off and then when you land. And really what it's counting is time. Mm -hmm. What they're using as a measure of lower body power here is vertical jump height. Right. So theoretically, and it stands to reason, the higher you jump, the more power you produce. It's very simple, right? So they're using time as an index for that. And there's a formula. It's one half GT squared. G is the acceleration due to gravity. Mm -hmm. So that will tell you basically converts to how high you jumped. That's not a gold standard. The gold, there's a better standard, which is you use a vertical jump tester like a Vertec. Mm -hmm. And then you jump and tap it. That's one way to do it because you're measuring an actual distance. Mm -hmm. Another way to do it is with a visual analysis. So you do, let's say, a kinematic analysis with a motion capture system where you mark a point on the body and see what it displaces in space. Mm -hmm. um, the best way the gold standard is to use a force plate. So someone jumps off a force plate, you can measure how much force they produce. That is the direct way to measure it. So this is sort of like an indirect, indirect, indirect methodology. I wouldn't do it if I were doing this research, but you know what? Everybody did it this way. So it was consistent across all mm -hmm. subjects. And as long as the people doing the measures were doing it the same way and they were using the device the same way, I'm not going to complain about this. Okay. It's fine. So not yeah. the gold standard, but consistent and gives us enough information. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So for the VO2 max, they did a treadmill test. And so treadmill, or I've done a, a cycling test for VO2 max, but treadmill cycling are typically the, the modes using for VO2. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so those were the secondary measures. So the, the changes in strength, uh, changes in power and changes in VO2 max. Um, and we, we mentioned the, the body fat, which was also... Uh, the DEXA was able to give the body fat measurements as well. Right. And training records. So for the train group, the records were supposed to have been kept by the trainers. And mm -hmm. for the self group, the, the training logs were supposed to have been kept by each individual person in the self group. Well, that makes sense. Yep. You know what I mean? If their self group doesn't have a trainer, then they have to keep their own records. Right. Okay. Okay. So okay. The, that was the, those are the measures. Mm -hmm. And now we have, all right, so how do they actually compare the measures? And that's where the statistics come in. And without getting too laborious in the discussion about it, they use T-tests, which is basically a test of means. And so they do a within-group T-test. So when you say a group had 
a significant improvement or not. That's a within group or what we call a dependent t-test. They do that within test. And then when they compare the groups, they do a t-test of independent samples. So all the t-test is doing is looking at how the mean values are changing relative to the overall variability. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. So I don't want to get too deep in it now. But essentially what we're trying to say is, look, any group has normal variability in the group. It's just humans being humans. Not everybody's identical. All we want to know is that whatever change we see is greater than the normal variability that occurs in human beings. If the change is smaller than normal variability, it's not significant. We can't say that that change is a result of whatever treatment we're applying. But if the change is greater than the normal variability, then we can say we have confidence that that's the change is due to whatever we were applying, the treatment that we were applying. Mm -hmm. So that's what a t-test does, is it compares the change in the means to the variability either within the group or between groups. And it says, is the change in mean greater than this variability that exists? And if so, those differences are significant. And so you set this, what they did was they set it at what they call the level P is less than 5%. And all that means is that they're setting a threshold so that they would say there's less than a 5% probability that any change we see is due to random variability that exists in the population. Mm -hmm. And 5% is the lowest acceptable level for any research. Anything greater than 5%, it's not, it's not reliable. And it's not something that we could assign to a treatment. Some studies use 1%. They right. basically say... If there's more than a 1% chance that this is random, we're not going to accept it. This study was set at 5%, which is fine. It's a standard. That's that's good enough. Okay. And really quickly, PJ, for anyone that might not know what, um, what you mean by means, actually, do you want to explain mean or means really quickly? Mean is average. Right. So if you have you know 17 people in a group and you test all their chest press strength, and you sum all those numbers and divide by 17, you get the average. That's the mean. Mm -hmm. So the thing about a group like that is you have 17 people in the group and you have a mean, let's say, I don't know what their value was in here. We can look at it, but let's just say for argument's sake, mm -hmm. the mean is 50 pounds. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's probably more than that, but some people will be 100 pounds. Some right. people will be 42 pounds. Not everybody's going to be 50 pounds. So there's the variability. Mm -hmm. Within that group, you have a mean value of 50, an average value of 50. But any one individual may be different from that average. And that's when we start to look at variability. So that's how that works. Right. And to your earlier point, that's why it's important when you have subjects together that they're in the same general pool. Yeah, because you don't want to introduce variability due to some other characteristic, right? So if you have a group of 17 people and six and 14 of them have the kind of exercise experience that they're talking about here, but three of them have never exercised before, now you're introducing another variable that could affect the variability mm -hmm. because those people haven't exercised before. The way they're going to respond to these things will be very different from the way everybody else will respond. And that introduces more error, mm -hmm. more variability. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that when we select these groups, we can be confident that the point at which they start, the baseline value, 
has to be the same because then we're looking at change over time from the same baseline. So that becomes something to consider as we go forward. Right. Okay. So that is the methodology. And what we need to do next is talk about, well, what did they actually find? And we're going to pick that up in our next segment. So stay tuned. Okay, we are back uh, in the fine print. Again, this is called What's It All About? We're going to start finding out what this is all about pretty quickly. We've talked about the methodology. Now let's get into the results. Let's find out what they found out. Right. Okay. Now we already covered some of these things in the abstract. So Mm -hmm. this is going to repeat to some extent what you heard, but we're going to get into it a little bit more deeply. Right. All right. So Let's start with the training records. This is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. If you recall, the uh, subjects were supposed to keep records. Now, the trainers were supposed to keep records on the train group members, subjects, and the self-directed subjects were supposed to keep their own records. Right. So what we discovered or what they reported is that 13 of 17 train group subjects submitted records. And... What's interesting about this is those records were not really complete because according to the authors, and I quote, because of the complexity of the periodized training routine, accurate training volume could not be calculated. Right. What? So <laughs> so what we know is that there were 17 people in this group, only 13 of them, 13 of 17 actually submitted records, and they're telling us that they don't really have accurate records about their training volume and what they did. Right. Which when you're doing a research study, that's a pretty significant part of it. Which we'll get to. Now, what we also know is that the trained subjects averaged 150 minutes per week plus 1.8 days per week outside of the program. Right. That's not what they were supposed to be doing, but that's what they did. Right. So, so that's an interesting thing. What yeah. do you think about that? Yeah. So obviously what that tells us is that they didn't adhere to the protocol uh, specifically as detailed. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Um, and then they say because the authors didn't anticipate this variance, they had no records of what was done during those additional training sessions. So what they're basically saying is they don't really know what anybody did here. Yeah. In that group. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So now we get to the self-directed subjects. Only 11 of 17, that's only 65% Mm -hmm. of the self-directed subjects submitted training records. Right. Okay. And they apparently, of those 11, they averaged 172 minutes per week. Mm-hmm. At an intensity, and they actually report their intensity, by the way, Yeah. Um, of 3.3 out of 5. In other right. words, on a 0 to 5 scale, 3.3 is kind of moderate. It's right in mm-hmm. the middle. So they spent 172 minutes a week at a moderate level of exercise, and they added an average of 1.3 days per week. That was the training record. So what do we know? We know that not everybody submitted a record, and we know that with the train group, 
they don't have records that tell us what they did. Um, we do know what the self group did, but not the train group. Mm-hmm. All right. Now the baseline statistics, age, height, weight, body mass index, lean body mass, no differences between the groups. So what they're saying is that both groups started off at the same level. If you compare the average of those values between the groups, they were basically the same mm-hmm. statistically. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Lean body mass, their total lean body mass. We already said that the train group improved lean body mass by 1.3 kilograms. Mm-hmm. That improvement within the group was significant. Mm-hmm. All right. There was no change in the self group. Right. They got nothing. There was a significant difference between the groups. Mm-hmm. So we know that the train group subjects got a better improvement than the self-directed subjects. All right. Appendicular lean tissue mass, pretty much the same pattern. The train group increased by 0.7 kilograms, which was 54% of the total lean body mass. Right. That was significant, a significant improvement. And they're saying that the self group actually decreased by 0.2 kilograms, but that was a non-significant decrease. Right. It was small. So they decreased, but it was small enough that it wasn't considered significant. Right. Because there was more variability in that group than there was change in the average. So this is getting back to that notion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's also very, now you could say this is measurement error, but it was done by a DEXA, which is Mm -hmm. very, very accurate. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's legitimately possible that this group lost 0.2 kilograms of muscle mass in their arms and legs, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't a significant loss because that's just the average. Some people did much better and some people didn't. And so it was not significant. So the way you address that is you say, you know what? It, there was no change. They cited a decrease, but there was no change because it wasn't a significant decrease. Right. But there was a significant between group difference. Right. Because right. one group went up and the other went down. Right. All right. Um, when they looked at weight and BMI and fat mass and percent body fat, uh, non-significant changes within the groups or between the groups for weight, BMI, or fat mass. Okay. So total fat. So those things stayed the same. There were no differences mm-hmm. right, between the groups. The self group had a 1% decrease in percent body fat, okay, which was significant. They had a significant decrease in percent body fat. The train group had a non-significant decrease of 1.8%, um, all right? So the self-group had a 1% decrease that was significant. And this is interesting. The train group had a 1.8% decrease that was not significant, and there were no between-group differences. Okay. Well, here's where we need to go through the fine print then, because on the surface, how could the train group have a 1.8% body fat decrease and the self group had a 1% decrease, but yet the self group's decrease is considered significant. And the 1.8, the larger overall decrease in body fat for the train group is considered non-significant. So yeah, how so, could that work? So that's where statistics work. And that's where we're talking about the difference between a change in mean and the variability as measured by standard deviation. And what it tells you is that in the self group, there was a more consistent decrease amongst all the members. Mm -hmm. So even though the the change was small, most of the members were very close to that average in terms of change. 
Mm-hmm. So if it was a 1% change of the 17 people in that group, they were much closely clustered. Their change was closer to 1%. So it mm-hmm. was close to the mean. And so that mean change occurred with very little error variability in there. So it's significant. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the train group, they had a 1.8% average but that means that some people did better and some people did much worse. So within the group, there was so much variability of any individual score from the mean that a change of 1.8% is not significant. So that's the problem. For that group. For that group. So in other words, the self-directed group in this case had more consistent decrease in percent body fat than the train group. Yeah, that's what it tells us, which is interesting. Interesting. Okay, so now chest press strength we already talked about. So the train group increased twenty three kilograms, right? And that was in that was significant. Mm-hmm. The self directed group increased eleven kilograms, and that was significant. Um, between group differences were significant. So the the train group had a better improvement in chest strength than the self directed group. Okay, mm-hmm. leg press strength. The train group increased 37 kilograms, right? And that was significant. So they had a significant improvement. The self-directed group increased 25 kilograms, and that was a significant improvement. But there was a non-significant difference between the groups. So again, they both improved, but why wasn't that difference significant? Because now what you're doing is when you do a... an test of independent means, a t-test of independent means, what you're doing is you're taking the total variability from both groups mm-hmm. and you're looking at an a average change in one group or the other against the total variability. And again, what it's telling us is that there's so much variability going on that the change within a group is not big enough compared to the total population variability, and therefore it's non-significant. What it really says, though, is even though the train group had a larger increase, because there were so much, there were so many scores that were far from that 37 kilogram average, mm-hmm. what it means is that there's no difference between the groups. So another way of saying it is the self group did just as well as the train group because mm. they were not statistically significant. So both groups essentially experienced the same change. Mm-hmm. There was no difference between the changes that occurred in those groups for leg press strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though the the overall load lifted was higher in the train group, but that that's right. So that's statistics, and that's the way that works out. All right. So moving on, lower body power. We already talked about it. The train group increased average power 158 watts. Um, the self group increased self directed group increased 17 watts. So that's a huge difference. It's like a nine-fold difference, actually, and those differences were significant. So the trained group members got more powerful, mm-hmm. and the self-directed group members did not. Right. Okay. VO2 max. Uh, trained group increased by 2.7 milliliters per kilogram per minute. All right? So that was a significant increase. It says the, self-group, the self-directed group decreased by 1.5 milliliters per kilogram per minute. And that was also significant. They had a significant decrease. We'll talk about that. Yeah. It's an interesting finding, actually. Yeah, that is is curious. 
Yeah. So there were significant differences. And so now when you, those are all the results. And so now you get to the discussion in the paper and the authors felt that this study proved their hypothesis regarding the effectiveness of a proprietary three-phase non-linear periodized program applied by a well-qualified trainer. Right. They proved it. Yes. Okay. They were unclear as to whether the effect was due to the program or the trainers or right. both. Right. That's interesting, right? So, but they suspected both. I wonder why they suspected both. Right. Well, they they do say that um exactly that they they don't know exactly whether it was the trainers or whether it was the program itself done by other trainers if you would have achieved the same result. So, yeah, yeah they, they don't, don't know that. They don't know. No, which is interesting. But they conclude that all increases in the increases in lean body mass, along with other fitness indices, will most likely be achieved by gym goers if they work out with a high caliber personal trainer using a precision program versus exercising on their own. Mm -hmm. Okay, there we go. That's the study. Those are the methods. We got the results. We got their discussion and their conclusions. Uh, are you ready to accept these findings the way they are? I think we should look at the fine print, PJ, before we accept these findings. Something's something's itching at me here. I think we need to look at the fine print too. Okay. And we're going to do that when we come back. Stick with us. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend, Jennifer Schwartz, on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high-quality exercise. And now, let's get back to our conversation. And we're back. Okay, so PJ, we just summarized the paper that we're mm -hmm. going over. Um, so, And we, we closed the last segment saying, before we accept these findings... You know, maybe we should look at the fine print a little bit deeper. So where, where do we even start when we go through the fine print? Where do we start? Yeah, where to begin, right? <laughs> um, all right, let's begin at the beginning, as you like to say. Yeah. Let's start by looking at the methods, okay. all right? So let's, let's really break down their methods and see what we come up with. Now, when we do this, we're going to be talking about some issues that we see, right? Mm -hmm. This is not like we're praising what's going on here. We're going to really start picking this thing apart. And the first thing is there was no control group, right? And, and that's an interesting thing. Even in the last segment, we mentioned that the authors couldn't tell us whether the changes were due to the program or the trainers or some combination. And part of the problem is the way this thing was designed. The, there was no control group. And that is like cardinal sin number one. When you're doing a training study like this, you have to have a control group, and they didn't have one. Okay, so let's just not assume that everyone knows what a control group is. So let's talk about what a control group is. Okay, so a control group basically is a group of subjects who gets tested the same way, pre and post. So they get baseline tested, and they get tested after 12 weeks. But in this, in the time that everyone else is training, they're not training. Mm -hmm. They may come in and read a book. They may have like a little journal club. They may mm -hmm. have, they may come in and play ping pong. What they're doing is they're spending the same amount of time doing an alternative activity that has nothing whatsoever to do with fitness. 
Right, because someone uh, hearing just hearing about this paper on our podcast or maybe reading it themselves once might have thought that the self group was the control group. But what you're saying is that that's not the control group. So there was one group that got trained. There is another group that's self-trained but still trained. And now we need to compare those two to a group that's doing nothing to see what the effect of the interventions could be on a group. That's, that's right. That's yeah, our that's baseline. A, that's the baseline because basically, again, there's normal human variability. So let's say you have all these people who come in as control group subjects and they show an improvement over time of whatever. Their VO2 max goes right. up. Now, they haven't done anything, but their VO2 max goes up. So if we're looking at a trained group, we want to say that their improvement in VO2 max was greater than the control group, because if it wasn't, then they didn't improve. So there was no control group here, which is a real problem. And if there, and the other part of the control group is when you do a t-test for dependent measures, which is a within group t-test, they have to be compared to somebody. So when you look to see, did the trained group improve? Did the self-guided group improve? That improvement has to be measured against a group that doesn't do anything. And they didn't do that. Hmm. Now, why they didn't do that, we can speculate. All right. But the fact is they didn't do it. So really, you know, then the question is like, well, how should they have broken out the groups? Because that's another issue. And that gets into, um, you know, some other things that we will discuss as we continue to pick this thing apart. But not having a control group is a major no-no. Okay. So let's talk about this because we did mention that the subjects were all pulled from generally, you know, all men 30 to 44 years old had similar training experiences. And so their difference measuring at baseline were considered non-significant, right? They were, they were homogeneous enough to where they were they were eligible to be considered to be pulled from the same general pool. However, just because they were considered non-significant difference between their groups, the differences that actually did exist between the groups were not insignificant, correct? That's right. So I like the way you put that. Yeah, there were non-significant <laughs> non-significant group differences between the groups doesn't mean that the differences were insignificant. You're absolutely right. Look, Significance is a statistical measure. Then there's also the practical side of this, mm -hmm. right? And so basically they say the subject characteristics were the same, but look, anyone who's ever trained anybody knows that if you have a person who's heavier when they start than another person, the potential for them to lose weight is greater than the lighter person. If someone's stronger than someone else, the potential for that person to gain strength is lower than someone who has less strength. Yeah. So there may be statistically insignificant differences, but when you look at some of the actual differences between these group measures, there were meaningful practical differences between the group measures. So for example, the average weight of the trained group subject was six pounds heavier than the self-directed group subjects. Mm -hmm. Six pounds. Yeah. Like that's insignificant statistically, but those people on average were heavier than the self-directed group and members. Particularly as it relates to body fat. So the trained group actually had 5% higher body fat or 4.5% higher body fat than the self-group. Yeah. So that's 
again, not statistically statistically significant, but not insignificant. Right. I mean, it's were they statistically different? No. But still, you're talking about on average. That's the average. That means that there were some people in that group that were much heavier and some people that were lighter. So, yeah, the averages were the same. But, you know, anyone who's trained people, if, you know, there's a difference there of almost 5% body fat. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference between group members to, yeah. you know, for as a baseline. Yeah. Um, chest press else? strength. Yeah. yeah. So the chest press strength in the self-directed group on average was nine pounds heavier mm -hmm. than the trained group. So the trained group had a greater potential for strength increases. Um, the leg press, 16 pounds heavier on yeah. average in the self-directed group. So which of these groups do we think has a better window of opportunity for improvement? Yeah, so it's certainly painting a picture that the subjects in the train group might have a larger window of adaptation, especially over a 12-week study, something like this, than the self-group. Right. I mean, naturally, listen... They they could have got done better just because even though statistically the baseline was the same, there was enough practical, meaningful difference in actual physiology and morphology there that it could have affected the outcomes without a question. Yeah. So one of the frustrating things with any study is that, look, all you can, if there's if they don't have the data there or the explanations to tell you exactly what was done, all you can do is project. So we're, we are not projecting any impropriety here. We don't think they no. purposefully did anything to like, you know, bias the groups in one way to get a certain outcome. But what could, what, what could they have done to get the, the groupings better? Okay. So this is an interesting question and I'm glad you asked that. Uh, we still want a randomized process, but when you're dealing with something like this, you actually have to go the extra mile to make sure that those groups are really the same. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, we do something called matching subjects. So I'm actually going to test everybody's baseline before I randomize them into groups. So mm. that's the difference. You don't randomize them and then test them. You test them all as a single group. Then you put them into the two training groups. So what you do is you reach into a hat and you pick out number six and you say number six has these characteristics. Mm -hmm. Now what you do is you look down the list of subjects and you find another subject that has the same characteristics as number six and you put that one in the alternate group. Mm -hmm. So if you put number six in the training group or the train group, then you put the next one in the self-directed group. Mm -hmm. Now what you do is you randomize the self-directed group next. So you pick one out of the hat, you put that person into the self-directed group, so that person's randomized, and then you match a subject from the total population into the train group. So when you do this, you're randomizing half of the population. So there is a randomization that occurs, but what you're also doing is matching up the subjects. So when you look at these measures after baseline, now you have two groups that are virtually identical. Right, to balance they, it out. To balance it out. They did not do that here. Now, and could, so what they, they, in, they inadvertently created a group that had a better potential for change than the other group. Now, could you, if you already did the randomization and right before you're about to pull the trigger on the study, you see that this is the way the groups are now uh, grouped together. Could you 
go back and match then or once you randomize them and put them into groups it, it it's just too time consuming to then go back and switch them and match them it's not so much a it's a, it's not so much a time consumption issue it's once you place someone in a group if you say hey, we're going to move you over there now you've created a psychological condition that can affect the outcome so the better way to do this is just to te- do baseline testing on everybody up front because it doesn't matter which group they are at that point, then you randomize them. And that way, everybody knows you don't switch anybody around. There's no mental change that someone has to prepare for. That's the way you do it. Okay. All All right. right. So continuing with our teasing this thing apart in the fine print, insufficient record tracking. Like what's up with that? Yeah. There was only 70% of all of the subjects submitted training records. 30% of their subjects submitted nothing. You know, and they're saying what? Because of the complexity of the train group, they couldn't record anything? Yeah. So that that's a hard pill to swallow because, you know, studies like this, like if if I don't know what you're doing because it's a proprietary program and I don't know how much you're doing of it, I don't know what I'm really left to measure if I want to replicate the study, which is what a lot of you know studies are based on, that you do a study, then I say, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to try it, but I'm going to put a little tweak on it. How would I even begin to assemble a replica study? So You can't ever replicate this study. There's just no way to do it. In a word, troubling uh, about the, the lack of record keeping. It's, it's, yes, it's and in a the context real problem. Of this world-class team of, you know, people that, uh, obviously know their way around, uh, training subjects and training clients. Like, you know, record keeping is not some uber sophisticated thing that you only learn once you start getting your PhD program. Like from the first day on the job as a personal trainer, you have, whether it's your phone now, whatever piece of paper, like tracking data, no matter what you're tracking that, you know, that should be pretty simple. So yeah, I mean, even not in 2014, you could take a piece of paper and say, oh, subject, you know, X did uh, 16 kettlebell swings, yeah. you know, at five kilograms. I mean, anybody can do that. The fact that they didn't do that, that's that's really a red flag for me. I mean, it's almost like they were hiding something. So that is a real issue. And, you know, we mentioned that only 11 of the 17 self directed subjects submitted. So that's a problem. So from the data that we got from the self-directed subjects, 27% of the workouts included cardio exercise. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Which is interesting. 39% of the workouts involved resistance training. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering here, like, wait, if they knew that the goal was to improve lean body mass, then why was only 39% of the workout Resistance training. That's an interesting question. Now, we can ask them, but we don't have their records. So we we don't know. Now, that to me, that's so, yeah, we don't know. And all I can do is speculate that someone may have easily went on to Google and said, you know, typed in best workouts for increasing lean muscle mass. And I'm sure there was something that said, lift weights, lift weights with some cardio, lift weights with some high intensity. So whatever. But the statistic that we're not divulging is that the other percentage was quote unquote other. And that's honestly the way they (laughs) cite it in the paper that it was other. So 
I mean, talk about ob- obfuscation. I mean, there's we don't know what anybody did, and then we don't even have a so other could be for a group that's training themselves that you know five to seven times a month. You know that puts you in uh, like yeah, a moderate exerciser. You know, not someone that is you know hitting the gym five times a week. So someone that's self-directing their own training, that's spending uh, almost a quarter of their time doing other. That could be anything from stretching, foam rolling, looking at your phone, uh, looking at, uh, you know, motor imagery of other people working out. I mean, literally, we just don't know. We we, we have no clue. Let, and let, let me tell you that it was 29% was other. That's right. more than a quarter right, of their right. time. Yeah. So, yeah. What did you do in your work? I don't know. I went to the steam room for 25 yeah, minutes. Yeah. I mean, like other. What is other? And then they say 5% of the time was done, it involves sports. Yeah. Well, what, what kind of sports are they doing in a gym, like in a, in a health club? I mean, some have racquetball, some have, but not, you know, this one, you know, again, we don't want to reveal who this is, but, mm-hmm. you know, most, most fitness clubs, you know, basic fitness clubs, what kind of sports are they doing? 5% of their time was sports. So, you know, it, it's sort of like we get this information about what these people do are doing. And I'm thinking, okay, even if they're in the self group and they're not getting any guidance, then they should have at least gone to Google, like you said, and like, how do I improve my lean body mass? I get the impression, honestly, you know, look, what did they get from this? They, their incentive to do this was to get two free months membership and some and six personal training sessions. And I, you know, if I were one of those people, I would be saying, you know what? I'm just gonna show up and work out. I mean, they worked their intensity was 3.3 mm-hmm. out of five. I'll just show up, I'll do a workout, I'll hit the sun, I'll hang out with my friends, I'll have a coffee, you know, and that's my training. That's the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and all I need to do is, you know, for 36 sessions, I just have to do that. And I get two free months and six personal training sessions. Like yeah. I'm, am I really incentivized to improve my lean body mass? Let me tell you something. If you told me that for every kilogram of lean body mass I put on, I'd get six months of membership. I would have put on four kilograms of body mass. Right. Right. My, my feeling here is that these people really didn't try very hard. Yeah. I mean, again, we can only project and I, that sounds about right to me. Um, I don't know if they changed their regimen that much. And yeah, I think to your point that the the incentive was after this is over that, you know, they would get a chance to work with this world-class team of trainers and get the free months. And yeah, so they were sort of in the on-deck circle waiting for their time to work with this group of trainers. Yeah, but it wasn't like the incentive is if you put on X, you'll get to get this. Yeah. It was no matter what you do, you're going to get yeah. two months and, and training sessions. Yeah. Fine. I don't care what, I'll, I'll just show up. I don't have to do anything. Right. So it's interesting. And since the hypothesis of this whole study, like their theory was that the trainer would give you a better result. There was no incentive for the club that, had done the underwriting on this for those self-directed group members to actually do any better. <laughs> so you don't want them doing better because you want to show that the trainers are delivering a better result. Sure, so look. I'm sure there was no real incentive for these folks to do anything. 
I'm sure that is the underlying truth. Yep. So PJ, we need to go over the aerobic training that were done by the groups. <laughs> this is really fascinating to me. VO2 max, right? How is it that a group of self-directed subjects worked out 172 minutes a week mm -hmm. and you know, almost 30% of that was cardio, mm -hmm. all right? So they're doing quite a bit of cardio training. How do they have a decrease in VO2 max? Like, how do you do anything? Like, you would have to lay on a couch in a coma with having you know, someone else stuffing potato chips into your comatose <laughs> body to lose oxygen consumption in 12 weeks. Like, how does a group that is exercising on a regular basis lose 1.5 milliliters a kilogram per minute of oxygen consumption after 12 weeks of training? Yeah, I have no answers for it, and either did the investigators in the study. So I don't well, know. I could tell you what it is. Well, what do you think? So the standard error of measure for a VO2 max test is yeah. 2.7 milliliters per kilogram per minute. Okay. What does that mean? That means when you run a VO2 max test, normally there's error associated with the findings. It's not perfect. It's not infallible. You don't get the same result every single time you do it. Every time you do it, there's a slight difference. We call that error. Mm -hmm. The standard error is 2.7 milliliters per kilogram per minute. What it means is that on average, you're going to have whatever you score, you're going to have an addition to that plus or minus 2.7 mm -hmm. milliliters. That's the error. So when you're looking at changes in VO2 max, any real change has to be greater than that. If it's within 2.7, it's just measurement error. Right. So I remember when I used to get my body fat tested by calipers, you know, just a handheld caliper 20 years ago, there was this idea that it was plus or minus 5%, that if you tested 10%, you might be 5%, you might be 15%, but the general standard of error for using a handheld cheap caliper was about 5%. Right. So for VO2 max, it's 2.7. Okay. So, so when you see the self group had a decrease of 1.5 milliliters, that's mm -hmm. within 2.7. That's measurement error. So in other words, it didn't change, right? Yeah. That they didn't have a decrease. It didn't change. And by the way, the train group members, they increased by 2.7 milliliters. Mm -hmm. That's measurement error. So they didn't change either. Okay. So neither group changed. You have to completely throw those findings out. Wow. So the question is, why did the authors put them in? Well, one could argue that it, you know, it, it supports their evidence. It supports their hypothesis. Let's go back to the lean body mass issue, because okay. this is really fascinating to me. We've already stated that the train group subjects were fatter in the first place and they were weaker in the first place. So there was a, a better opportunity for them to improve strength and muscle mass and all this other stuff. Right. So we know that there was a change in that group of 1.3 kilograms, and there was no change in the self-directed group. They also mentioned that 1.3 kilograms is consistent with other studies that are looking at lean body mass, right? So right. when they compare that number, it's they, they see this in other studies. So it's a respectable number. It's consistent with, with what's already out in the literature. But what they don't do anywhere in this paper is talk about the effect size. And that's something which not everybody wants to do. It's kind of like, you know, the 
purple elephant in the room, <laughs> but it needs to be done. So what do I mean by effect size? It means that things can be significant, but they may not be meaningful. Mm-hmm. And this, again, gets back to this notion of variability. What we want to do is we want to compare the change in the average value, the mean value change to the variability, to the standard deviation of those measures. So you divide the standard deviation into the mean and you come up with a number. And that number is called the effect size. And it tells you whether something is actually a meaningful difference, not whether it's a significant difference. Statistics can be set up so that you get significance. The question is, how much does that mean to us? All right. And so the way you do it, again, is you divide the mean by the standard deviation. In this case, the mean improvement in that group was 1.3 kilograms of lean body mass. Mm -hmm. The standard deviation was 1.6 kilograms of lean body mass. In other words, on average, the subjects, any subject was 1.6 kilograms from the mean. Mm -hmm. So the actual variability was larger than the change in the mean. That yields an effect size of 0.81. So what does that mean? That's just a number. Okay. What does 0.81 mean? It means that there's only a 70% probability that a person from the train group will score higher than a member of the self-directed group. Hmm. That's what the effect size means. Only 70%. So yeah, in a certain context, 70%, you know, certainly above 50%, above chance. But still, when you compare that this program was designed by a team of world-class experts and, uh, you know, under the, under the direction of world-class personal trainers, 70%, you know, could be argued that it's lower than you would expect to see. Yes. <laughs> to put it nicely. <laughs> and not only that, what it also means basically is that if you were to look at a score, there's only a 66% chance that just by looking at the score, you could tell which group somebody's in. Mm-hmm. Holy, like, really? <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the effect size in this particular uh, criteria measure, lean body mass, is way too small. If this is your primary measure, if this is it, and you have an effect size of 0.81, something's wrong. I mean, this should have been, the effect size should have been two or three. I mean, the the difference should have been huge mm-hmm. and it wasn't. And that is alarming. Yeah. And incidentally, so one thing I like to do when I'm curious about a subject is I like to start with a, a meta-analysis, which, you know, sometimes they're very general, just it gives you a broad overview of a topic. I also like it because if I'm interested generally in a topic, then it also helps me hone in on some specific papers. But it's not a good way of measuring like one study versus another, particularly. It's better for giving you like a broad overview. So when so I, would you just explain to our listeners what a meta-analysis yeah, is just so, so they know? Sure. So a meta-analysis is when a... Uh, a an author looks at a lot of papers on a subject and typically they'll have search criteria. So if you put in lean body mass and if you put in lean body mass percentage changes over 12 weeks, you might find um, all the papers that meet that criteria will be reviewed and they kind of just give you a sense of the trends that they see 
um, mm-hmm. in all of these papers. So I looked at a bunch, I looked at a few meta analysis on lean body mass in terms of a bunch of different populations, anywhere from senior citizens to, you know, young bodybuilders, but generally you see changes in lean body mass for senior citizens in a group home that are, you know, not doing much more than active stepping and stuff of 1.1 kilogram after about 20 weeks to, you know, anywhere up to like 1.8. So in in younger subjects doing more high intensity strength training. So 1.3, somewhere in the middle, but actually closer to the lower end of the scale than the higher end of the scale. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some studies that have shown 1.8. I've seen some that have been 2.3. And I've mm. some a lot, you know, some of them show 1.3, but not in 12 weeks. They do it in eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, showing an, an improvement of 1.3 kilograms in 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have a moderate improvement and the effect size is relatively small. And so I'm shrugging my shoulders like you're, you're, you know, going to the bank with this lean body mass thing, it's not that impressive. <laughs> so um, anyway, so let's let's continue yeah. the, the strength measures. Obviously, there were differences in upper body strength. Um, but what was surprising to me was the lack of differences in lower body strength. Mm-hmm. Basically, the self-directed group members did just as well as the mm-hmm train group members that, you know, they were supervised by expert trainers in a periodized program. And yet both groups basically improve lower body strength to the same extent. Yeah. And we have to remember that the self group was actually starting out, you know, we can't say significantly stronger in a, you know, in a research context, but not not insignificantly stronger. They were 16 pounds stronger to start with. That's right. And so, yeah, they were stronger to begin with. So the likelihood of them having a bigger gain is smaller. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that really interests me is that, you know, the train group subjects had an FMS, which was part of their intake process. Right. We didn't mention And that. I don't think we mentioned that before, but the FMS was part of the intake process. And when you think about it, you know, the FMS, four of the seven of the seven assessments are lower body assessments. Right. So a majority of the assessments in an FMS look at the lower body and that is supposed to help the trainer to develop foundational and fundamental movement um, patterns and improve stability and mobility. And so the result of that should have been significantly greater improvements in that group. And yet there weren't any. So now I'm scratching my head saying, so what do the FMS do here? Right. So the FMS, the functional movement screen, is a tool used by this particular club. Um, and that they assess all their incoming members and they take the data from that FMS and that's really supposed to inform their training um, subsequent to that. Yeah. So, you know, did it do anything? I mean, it informed something, but it didn't mm-hmm. result in, in, in better outcomes. Right. So, all right, that's a whole nother topic of conversation, I suppose. Um, okay. And then the last measure was this lower body power measure. Now, yeah. This was really interesting to me because there was a nine nine-fold difference of improvement between the Which train group and the self group. Was significant. Yeah, to to put it mildly. But <laughs> you know what? Here's the problem. First of all, if what we said right at the top of this episode is that the self-directed group members were informed 
that the objective of this program that they were on was to improve lean body mass. Mm -hmm. They were not told that the goal was to improve leg power. Mm -hmm. Nothing was mentioned about power, Mm -hmm. right? So wait, by not, clearly they didn't do any power training. Right. right, and for someone that's a layperson and might not know that they might just think that all strength training also includes power training. Power train, we we do things differently, and we're not going to delve too deep into it now. But ty- typically, with power training, we're actually using lighter load and using moving at a higher velocity. So you would do some specific things in a training program if you're trying to eke out power adaptations versus just general strength adaptations. Yeah, there's a very specific protocol for improving power. And in fact, for the train group here, they even say in the third four-week cycle, they were doing high-intensity power training. Right. Whereas the self-directed group members weren't told anything about power. Mm-hmm. So they were following instructions. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, look, these people got you know better power improvements than the other group. I'm like, wait a minute. The other group wasn't informed that that was an objective. So how can you even measure them on that? I mean, this is actually sensationalism. This is actually ridiculous when you think about it to not say anything to these people about what they're supposed to achieve and then test them on that and say, hey, look, you didn't achieve it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you if you did a research study comparing a group that's training for power against a group that's not training for power, which one do you think is going to improve power? <laughs> I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would put my chips on the power group. Unbelievable. So you know what? This is another measure that you can just toss. Mm-hmm. This one can go out. VO2 max can go out. I mean, you know, we have real issues with this study beginning and possibly ending with the aims of the project itself. And so what we need to do is put a little perspective on this. Okay. Right? Because that's that's missing. And I think for anybody reading this, a little perspective may help them to understand what's really going on here. So we go back to the title of this and say, what's it all about? Well, We're going to talk about that in our next segment. So hang in there. Okay. Okay, we're back. Um, I have to admit, Gigi, this study really had me shaking my head. You know, I I think (laughs) it was just a head scratcher. I think adding some perspective and maybe a little bit of color commentary may go a long way to help readers of this paper really see really see what's going on. Agreed. So, you know, I mentioned in the beginning when we started that the authors of this paper suggest that it's the first of its kind. Yeah, it's one of a kind, all right. That's true, <laughs> but in in more ways than one. And so I really think we need to sort of lift the covers on this thing. Um, it may be the first to describe the effectiveness of supervised training, but there's something else going on here that really needs to be addressed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm saying there's something insidious going on here. You know, it, 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 the way I look at this, if you take the resources of one of the largest gym chains, which is, you know, look, yeah. what what gym chain has the resources to pull together a study like this with a major university and hospital center, 
Um, so you can figure that out for yourself. If, if mm -hmm. you take their resources and templates for supervised training developed by world-class, you know, panel of experts delivered by all these trainers, and you compare that to nothing, which is what the self-directed group was getting. Yeah. I mean, is that a legitimate question? Yeah, I, not to me. And, you know, quite frankly, it's disappointing because I remember when I struggled through my research and design uh, class in grad school that we went over this, these topics of like threats to a study. And you have to learn like what could potentially threaten a study. And I remember that two of the biggest threats were funding either that you were concerned that if you found results that you wouldn't get funding or B, if you got certain results, you would lose funding. And or uh, if you're in a school setting that like, you know, you just to, in order to keep your tenureship, you just have to keep mashing out papers after paper after papers. So this study didn't have any of those constraints on it. It was obviously well-funded. It wasn't done by a professor like trying to save his his or her chair and tenureship. So they didn't have what, what typically can befall other studies, which is makes it disappointing to me. Well, you know, first of all, if you're going to do this, you got to do it the right way. And, and there was this point that we raised that the authors didn't know what was responsible for the outcome. Was it the was it the program? Was it the trainers? Like some combination? And the reality is they should have structured the study that way. In order to do this the right way, you actually need multiple training groups. You need one group that gets a program without a trainer. You need one group that gets an independent trainer without a program. You need one group that gets both the trainer and the program. You need another group that is on their own. And then finally, you need a control group. You needed mm -hmm. five groups mm. right, to do this the right way. But they didn't do this the right way. What they did was hand-picked trainers from this club, hand-selected these mm -hmm. trainers and gave them this super-duper whopping program and, you know, then had them train these people. And to the other people, they said, you're on your own. And they even didn't tell them what the real goals were, what they were being measured on, because obviously they didn't do that. They instructed them to do something else, which right. is mind boggling to me. This is called setting up the outcome, mm -hmm. right? That's how this is done. And let me ask you this. Do you think there could have been some trainer bias here? I mean, again, we can only project, but how could there not be? Like when you just put this into the real world, uh, you're like I've worked as a trainer in a club when you're one of five, look, there, are only, there aren't only five trainers in this club. I can guarantee you there's more than five. So if you're selected as one of the five, uh, look, kudos to you. You've earned it. You've obviously put in the time and effort to, you know, educate yourself. And, but no one wants to be part of a study. And then, um, you know, it's just the human condition. You don't want to be part of a study and then your subjects don't perform well or you're the reason the study, uh, you know, tanks. So, of course, that, that you've got some intrinsic motivation to want the subjects to perform really well. So you look good at the conclusion of the study. Absolutely. So is there a potential for them to have gone outside the protocol themselves? Possibly. I mean, look, they are, this club underwrote this study. Mm -hmm. And you're a trainer in this club. And if you have half a brain, you know what the club is trying to do here. They're trying mm -hmm. to show how great the results are going to be. 
And if you're one of those trainers that doesn't deliver on those results, wow, this isn't about, these aren't students taking a class. These are people whose livelihoods depend on the outcome of this thing. Mm -hmm. So I would have to think that there's some kind of fishiness going on behind the scenes that could also have affected this. Yes. So to get back to the, what we addressed earlier, that the the subjects in both groups went outside the protocol. So to me, once they knew, and again, they in the paper they cite that they didn't know that the subjects went out of the protocol until they did an exit interview. But honestly, I have a hard time believing that's possible, but taking it at face value, once they knew that the subjects went outside of the protocol to the extent they did, mm-hmm. what, would, what would have been the credible scientific thing to do with this entire study? Well, I don't know. I mean, if clearly all of the subjects didn't go outside the protocol to to the extent of our knowledge, for all we know, they may have. But, you know, it, yes, you're absolutely right. Could they is there any way that they didn't know that one of these subjects was working out on their own? I mean, come on. Th- these subjects are members of the club. If they're supposed to be there for training only f- un- under that protocol, and you're meeting them three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And so all of a sudden you're in the gym on Tuesday and they're in there working out. They've already violated the protocol. What you right. need to do as a, in a legitimate studies need to toss that subject and get a new one because they have already gone outside the protocol and they didn't do that. All of those subjects that failed to follow the basic rules of the program should have been tossed out as subjects. But uh, they didn't, which is incomprehensible to me, really. Uh, you know, <laughs> anyway, um, we, we continue because this gets really interesting. <laughs> Look, you know, this wasn't a study examining the effects of two different training protocols. Let's, let's call it what it is, right? Let's be honest here. We have no idea what people did. Right. We, have, <laughs> we have no clue what anybody did because they didn't. Either they didn't keep records or they refused to tell us because it was proprietary. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we can't say that this is the difference between protocols because we don't know what the protocols were. Right. (laughs) This was a comparison of two different service options. Mm -hmm. That's what this was. This was a comparison of a proprietary program delivered by a trainer or being left completely on your own. In other words, getting nothing. That's what this was. And based on that, is it any surprise that there were results? If I ask you up front, I don't have to do a training study like this to be able to say, you know what? If you compare someone working out with a trainer in a program and compare someone to someone working out on their own, is it any surprise that the trainer and program subject will do better? And the answer is no surprise. The question is, how much better? Right. That's what I'm interested in. How much better? Mm -hmm. So, you know, another thing is like in the introduction of the paper, and and I really do hope that people get a chance to read this. They say the authors, you know, the authors question whether over 8.6 million references to lean body mass in a Google search provided appropriate guidance or whether any guidance would be correctly interpreted by individuals without training experience. In other words, they determined that there were over 8.6 million references to lean body mass. Mm -hmm. The question is, do people seek those references? And if they do, 
Do they pay attention to them? They learn anything from them. But here's the problem. They never bothered to ask any of the self-guided members if they had done that. Right. Or if they did, they didn't put it in the paper. But yeah. I mean, they made a point of saying that up front in order to show people, to say to people, you're never going to get this information or you're never going to interpret this information on your own. So you should be looking for someone who can provide it for you. But they never bothered to ask those subjects whether they sought that information or not. Mm -hmm. To me, that's disingenuous. If you're making it a point as the foundation for your study, then at least ask people what they did to try to understand how they did seek and acquire information. They never right. bothered to do that. Right. Yeah. All we have are the general nuts and bolts of what comprised whatever it is they did, generally speaking, but that's it. No, that's it. And, you know, then it, it gets me down to this very simple question. Why do we conduct and publish research? I'm a research scientist. You've read lots of research. You know, you're you're the graduate of a of a really high quality master's degree program in motor learning where they do a lot of research. Why are we doing research? And and there's a philosophical issue here. We as as educators, as research scientists, as clinicians, as practitioners the reason we do this is because we want to advance our the common body of knowledge of science about what we do. We ask questions so that we could learn about the human condition and then share the findings with people who are going to read this stuff. And I've always said my responsibility as an educator is to share my knowledge. So when I, when I discover things in a research setting, it's my responsibility to share that information so that other people can benefit from that. Now, whether they agree with it is another issue. You know, we had our episode earlier when we had the wonderful Kelly Roberts join us and we yeah. were talking about different kinds of training and we got mm -hmm. into the studies done by Izumi Tabata. Now, she's not a fan of Tabata, which is fine. That's her right. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the studies that Tabata published, he provided us with all the information, exactly what the protocols were. We knew exactly what comparisons were being made so that when he presented his findings, it left it up to us to say, okay, we accept this or we want to change it. You know, if, if we want to advance information in science, we say, well, what if we do it this way? Mm -hmm. What if I take this variable and change it? Will I get a different outcome? That's what we're supposed to do. So we and, need to start with an honest question, which an I honest don't know. question yeah, I don't and know an honest that. intention. It's not just the question, it's the intention. What is the intent of this? And look, we all have biases. There's sure. no question about it. We covered a paper in our last episode of the fine print. There was, you know, a pretty obvious bias on behalf of the authors, but at least they put all the information in there. They but didn't when, report on all of it, but they put it all in there and they left it for us to tease it out. But when you were a chief science officer at Cybex, you guys did studies and you guys partnered with universities, right? And look, of course, like you're not hoping that a study is done and they prove that the equipment is terrible, but you have to let them do the study as they see fit, correct? Well, and I can't dictate a, a situation or dictate a methodology that's going to deliver the outcome that I want. 
So how did and, those studies work when you partnered with different universities? So the, the deal was, and, and we did this predominantly with the University of Massachusetts Amherst, A, when we set out to do a study, we set it up legitimately. We, the methodology had to be correct and they had to do the work and the findings were the findings. Mm -hmm. We couldn't influence the outcome. They either did it the way it's supposed to be done or they refused to do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then they would even ask me if we do this study and if we discover that the findings are not flattering or we, we discover something that's not to your advantage or benefit, are you going to tell us to bury it? And I said, no, publish it. And if it's done the right way and those are the outcomes, then we have to live with it. So publish it. But, you know, this is not what's going on here. Yeah, that's not what happened in this paper. No, there's no question that's not what happened in this paper. What happened in this paper is that the institution doing this was told what to do and they did it. And this was grossly biased in favor of the training group. And they got a very specific outcome. And, you know, the fact that they wouldn't tell us what actually happened, it's not they couldn't tell us. They really wouldn't tell us, mm -hmm. which is mind boggling to me. Why are we then doing this? And, you know, this, this, they actually, what's fascinating to me is they put more effort into describing how well qualified the trainers were and what this expert panel of, you know, that was guiding the program development, they spent more time really describing the quality of the program than in telling us what anybody did. Yeah. Well, look, I, my guess is that they knew the intended audience was really more, it was going to be synthesized into a two or three sentence blurb in consumer magazines. And the take home message from the consumer magazines is going to be, look, this club has and for a while, this study was actually known as, quote unquote, the study. So I think they knew uh, that this study would eventually, the way the the majority of the readership would not actually be other researchers, that the majority of the readership would be people that would be reading a synthesized paragraph snippet of this, and it would get across their take-home message. It, it's very likely possible that's true. And, you know, what this really is, is a lesson in pseudoscience. That's <laughs> so pseudoscience is when you take opinion and belief and wrap it in a scientific construct. This is marketing. This isn't science. When, when we set about a research study, we want to learn something. Our objective in doing research is to learn something. We ask a question. We go about a legitimate process of measuring, testing and measuring, and then we come up with an answer. We may not like it, but we still learn something from it, right? If you apply a treatment and you get no result, that's still a result. Mm -hmm. You still learn something that mm -hmm. whatever you did didn't work. You mm -hmm. learn something, right? That's the reason you set about a scientific process. The other th way to do it is to prove something. Mm -hmm. I want to prove that something is right or wrong. That's pseudoscience, right? That's not learning anything. You set out to prove something. And that's what this is. This is a poorly veiled attempt to market a personal training program and make it seem legitimate 
by putting it into a you know having a third party do the research and submitting it through a, a journal hmm. but it's marketing through and through it's and it's really transparent and it's you know it's funny because i can't condemn the club for doing this sure i really i can't i mean look they're trying to sell personal training and so this is what they do and i would imagine they spent an awful lot of money getting this thing done mm-hmm. i take issue with the university that did the work mm-hmm. i take issue with a legitimate academic institution and medical center that would agree to do this why would you let a company dictate this to you and why would you do this and put and put it out as legitimate science right and what about the review not the journal itself but the reviewers of this paper because to me at least my opinion as someone that hasn't submitted any uh primary experimental research is that there are several things that the reviewers should have sent back before they published it. Oh, they should just should have sent it back, period. I mean, this thing is so flawed. It's so biased. It's got so much bad science in it. Uh, it does shock me that it passed the peer review process. Mm. And I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on how that happened. Right. But I've done much more legitimate scientific work that got rejected than this. The fact that this passed peer review is shocking to me. Mm. So it, you know what? It is what it is. And that's why we're doing this because there are people that are looking at this and they may take it seriously. And you can't take this thing seriously because it's just, you know, it's a parody of, of science and research. Um, but you know, let, let, I'm going to just add a couple of final thoughts because I think we've battered the heck out of this thing. Yeah. Um, there's a funny thing that happens when you set out to prove something. And you usually do. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know anyone who's, you know, tried to prove something and didn't prove it. Right. But there's a problem when you do that. When you prove yourself right, what you do is you jump up and down and you pat yourself on the back and you say, look at how great we are. And you confirm your beliefs and you continue to do what you've been doing. And the scary thing about this is you had a change in lean body mass, which was not all that great, really. And you had no difference in leg strength gained. I mean, if if I were the club operator in this case, I wouldn't be patting myself on the back. I would be mortified by these results. I would go screaming into the night that the differences between these groups were so small. Like I, I've got these world-class trainers and incredible advisory board helping us build this program. And these people were left to their own devices and they were misinstructed as to what they needed to do. And the differences weren't that dramatic. Right. Holy smoke. And you know, that's what I would be concerned about. And I'm going to put this in dollars for a minute. If you think about it, each one of those training sessions is what, 120 bucks an hour, 120 bucks a session. And they did 36 training sessions. So that's $4,300 that a member would have to pay for this to gain 1.3 kilograms of lean body mass. 
So that equates to $3,323 per kilogram of muscle that you're putting on. <laughs> That's really? expensive stuff, yeah. I, it, if, if I'm at the club, I'm pulling my hair out saying, what the heck is wrong with our program? I'm not bat, patting myself on the back saying, hey, look at how great we are. You know, since we have no idea what anybody did in this study, I could say, look, for five bucks, I could go to the newsstand and get a copy of Men's Health and get a power training program out of right. that. That'll get me the same results as what I would have to spend $3,323 on. Yeah. Holy smoke. This is it's one of my favorite studies ever, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, my takeaway after all this is... Um, I, I'm disappointed just because I thought that it was such, you know, look, as someone that still identifies as a personal trainer, you know, you're always struggling to try to, you know, do whatever you can do to move the profession towards a more respected professional direction. You know, like I, I joke about this all the time, but in any TV show, movie now, when you want to have a character that's a goofball, they typically cast them as a personal trainer or a group <laughs> fitness instructor. And look, we I've got to wear the hat. And it's because we're not legislated as a group. There's no licensing. And, you know, when we have an actual research study that could be really cool if it was done well, where then I could say like, hey, but you know what? Like there's been some cool studies actually showing like the difference between legitimate personal training and just, you know, leaving working out on your own devices i wish i could like just pull it up on my phone and show someone but like this this study is a clown show it's just not asking an honest question and living with the as you said living with the results of whatever the outcomes might be so it's disappointing to me i hope that someone listening to this podcast maybe is in the position where they could try to do a study like this but do it legitimately and do it with the right amount of groups and um ask honest questions and live with the results of whatever answers you get because these types of studies need to be done and we actually need to see more of these types of studies they just need to be done properly and authentic well said Gigi. and i think with that we can move on and hopefully uh, our listeners enjoyed this discussion and the breakdown of this paper go ahead we're gonna put the citation in our Instagram post and in the show notes. So if anybody wants to try to pull it up, they're certainly welcome to. I hope you enjoy reading it. Um, and with that, we hope to have our listeners join us in our next episode of Fitness for Consumption. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and it gave you lots to think about. So while you're thinking, why don't you consider becoming a member of our round table? What's the round table? Well, it's a place where we meet to discuss, opine, question, comment, and just engage in respectful conversation about all things related to human movement science. Everyone that joins has an equal seat at the table. So become a member by finding us on Instagram and sending us a message or visiting us at our Facebook group, the Fitness for Consumption Roundtable, and just click to join. We hope to see you there.